Uh, I'm Mark Antion, and I would like to uh, welcome you to CSIS for this afternoon's event. Uh, I'm the interim director uh, for the project on military and diplomatic history here at CSIS. The project brings distinguished historians uh, to CSIS to talk about their craft uh, and the issues that they're working on. Our hope is to expand awareness of what's happening in these two um, important but often neglected um, um, areas of history. Today's event is part of that series, and I know some of you have been with us before, and I hope that you will join us uh, in future events. Before starting, I have to make one routine administrative announcement, and that is in the Adelaide State case of uh, emergency. I'll tell you uh, what we will do. We'll either exit through the front or uh, the back. And now to turn to our speaker, uh, Matthew Shannon is an assistant professor of history at Emory and Henry College. He has a PhD from Temple and has written extensively about diplomatic history and uh, U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. His most recent book, Losing Hearts and Minds, which I'm sure you all have, uh, explores an element of the difficult relationship between the United States and uh, Iran. Uh, he tells the story of the influx of Iranian students into the United States as part of a, um, a broader U.S. foreign, uh, rather Cold War initiative, uh, what we might call today uh, soft power, and also an effort to strengthen ties to the Shah, uh, with Iran being a U.S.-friendly uh, regional power in the Middle East. Um, that influx of students produced an alliance between student dissidents and American liberals, and together they rejected the Shah's authoritarian model for development and called for civil and political rights in Iran, uh, undermining the Shah and perhaps inadvertently uh, allowing the rise of the Islamic State. So with that as an introduction, let me turn things over to our uh, author. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Let me just make sure I know how to use all of the technology up here, and I can. All right, it's working. Um, all right. Well, hello to everyone who, who made it out, and to all of the others who may watch this uh, on the internet sometime. And uh, would thank Mark Moyer for inviting me a couple months ago to deliver this talk, and uh, Samuel Byers for doing all the arrangements, and everybody else who helped make. Uh, this event possible. I, I couldn't think of a place I'd rather be to, to talk about this book. Um, so the book, as you'll see up here on the, the PowerPoint, Losing Hearts and Minds, American-Iranian Relations and International Education During the Cold War, is about the relationship between Americans and Iranians during the reign of the last Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, a U.S. ally who ruled from 1941 to 1979. More specifically, the book is about the educational ties between the United States and Iran during that period and the ways in which those ties affected the binational relationship prior to the 1979 revolution. So I'll begin today where I begin the book uh, with an event from November 1977, the Shah's last of many official visits to the United States. As Jimmy and Rosalind Carter greeted the Shah and his empress on the south lawn of the White House, uh, just fewer than 4,000 Iranians, split between royalist supporters and anti-Shah students, rehearsed for an imminent revolution. 
When police responded, shifting winds took the tear gas they sprayed at the protesters toward the White House, uh, forcing a teary-eyed president and his guests to reach for their handkerchiefs. Students in Tehran staged simultaneous demonstrations, and the protesters in the United States that staged this one touted their victory in Washington, you see in the publications. Carter described the embarrassing scene in his memoir as an augury of things to come a reference to the ways in which the Iranian Revolution and the hostage crisis would, in, in just a few short years, bring about human tragedy in Iran and help bring an end to Carter's political career. So the question I asked about this event was this, and I thought it was a relatively simple one. Maybe I was wrong. Uh, why were there so many Iranian students in the United States? And what accounted for such an astounding manifestation of diaspora politics in Washington, D.C., on the eve of the Iranian Revolution? So I found the answer to that question as a Cold War story. This is part of the, the argument. Um, during the Cold War, many of us in the room will know that nuclear weapons forced the United States and the Soviet Union to wage war by other means and compete to win the hearts and minds of people around the world. Hard power, especially wars along the Eurasian periphery, uh, sorry, the Eurasian core and economic might at home and among allies was central to American and uh, Soviet Cold War strategies. What I'm interested, though, is how they waged this Cold War on the periphery. Soft power, defined by Joseph Nye as the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion, became an essential tactic of the larger U.S. strategy in Iran. Education, a form of soft power with the ability to transform nations and perhaps win hearts and minds, became a means by which the United States could complement strategic relationships and otherwise cultivate friendly relations with the nations around the world. In other words, the scene I painted a minute ago uh, about Carter and, and the Shah, um, the November 1977 piece, that scene grew out of decades of educational programming and the networks of migration that were established in the post-war years as the United States became the most dominant external power in Iran. And as that scene that we were considering a minute ago shows, cultural programs were never detached from larger political considerations about U.S. foreign policy and the nature of Pahlavi governance in Iran. So to explain this, I adopted a comprehensive rather than an episodic approach to the study of U.S.-Iran relations. There's excellent new scholarship that uses recently declassified documents, especially government documents, uh, to help us better understand episodes in the U.S.-Iran relationship. Think about the 1953 coup and the new first volume and all the uh, work that has come out on, on that subject, the coup that overthrew Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh I'm referring to. Uh, that would be an episode in the U.S.-Iran relationship. My approach, the comprehensive approach, by contrast, considers the entire period of the last Shah's reign, close to 38 years. Other scholars have done this, but since the late 1980s when James Bill... Uh, and Richard Cottam published their memoir histories. Uh, the best comprehensive examinations of the entirety of the Shah's reign really come from political scientists. Um, my approach doesn't test political science theories necessarily, like patron-client relationships or linkage leverage dynamics, but it certainly speaks to them. Uh, more important, I use English language archival documents to trace a historical connector, a thread, uh, namely international education and the resulting stream of Iranian student migration to the United States throughout these three to four decades. Another major difference that sets this book apart from other histories of U.S.-Iran relations is the way that it balances the relationship between state and non-state uh, actors. This is an old question. 
Uh, it goes back to the revisionist and corporatist studies of U.S. foreign relations decades ago, uh, but it's a question that remains as relevant as ever in the new literature on international education, on modernization and development, uh, and on human rights. Um, still, uh, there's a real lack of scholarship on the cultural connections between the United States and Iran during the Cold War. I'm, I'm surprised by this. Uh, because there were few countries outside of Europe uh, where the United States waged total Cold War with more intensity uh, than Iran. Uh, here you'll see by the 1970s, the publications of cultural organizations, they're just overwhelmed. They, they literally can't handle uh, the volume uh, of requests that they're getting in Iran. Moving to new buildings, documents talking about elevators literally being unable to uh, withstand uh, the weight. Uh, and, and the volume of people-to-people -people contacts between the two countries bear out this assertion. Between the end of the Second World War and the start of the Iranian Revolution, as many as 850,000 Americans traveled to Iran. It was a little easier to travel to Iran in the 60s than today. Um, the statistics on the Iranian student community are equally as impressive, maybe even more. Uh, while there were only about 500 uh, Iranians studying in the United States in 1950, that number steadily increased to about 5,000 by 1960 to around 12 to 15,000 by the end of that decade, by the end of the 1960s. The oil boom years of the 1970s saw the Iranian student population abroad grow exponentially to reach more than 100,000 worldwide by spring 1978, uh, with more than half of them in the United States. So about 50,000 Iranian students in the United States made Iran the largest exporter of students to the United States on the eve of the revolution, depending on how you count uh, the students as you move through 1979, that number would get even higher with the Carter White House talking of upward of 70,000 uh, students of some sort from Iran uh, as the 1970s gave way to uh, the 1980s. Um, so what is my argument? What is my thesis now that we have the, the framework established? I argue that international education served a dual function in the American-Iranian relationship. It served a dual function because of the contradictions between the various tracks of American diplomacy. One track that supported the illiberal Pahlavi government as an agent of modernization and anti-communism, and another that promoted the liberal ideals uh, that cultural programs such as international education uh, brought to the world during the Cold War. So on the one hand, we see that U.S. policymakers, diplomats, aid officials, philanthropists, educationalists created a vast array of government-sponsored and non-governmental educational programs that were designed to supply the Shah with the trained manpower to modernize Iran. Iranian alumni of American universities were elected to the Majlis, so the Iranian parliament. They entered the Shah's bureaucracy. They staffed the, the plan organization. They staffed the National Iranian Oil Company worked in the financial sector, the banks, served in the armed forces, joined university faculties, and even by the late 70s assumed the premiership. In this sense, then, education laid the cultural foundation for the Washington-Tehran alliance, which was quite, quite strong during this period. On the other hand, because the Pahlavi state did not tolerate opposition within its borders, dissent grew out of the educational networks that connected the United States with Iran. So a major theme of the book um, is how international education creates a space, created a space, for dissident students to contest the legitimacy of the Pahlavi state. The Iranian Student Association in the United States, which was for many years part of the broader Confederation of Iranian Students National Union, served as a vehicle for anti-Shah student organizing abroad during the 1960s and the 1970s. 
While abroad, Iranian students met Americans, uh, and together they adopted worldviews that transcended traditional calculations of national interest, and they engaged in an evolving rights discourse, human rights discourse, uh, that aimed to discredit U.S. policy and, and, and the Shah's rule. In this sense, then, the people-to-people -people context facilitated a larger, more sustained Iranian effort uh, to enlarge the umbrella of rights in their country. This effort goes back to the constitutional period of the early 20th century, and as we see uh, in the news, continues today. So I'll spend the rest of my time discussing how precisely international education contributed to the Shah's modernization program and also a transnational human rights movement. Or I'll talk about how international education served a dual function in the binational relationship because of the inconsistencies of Washington's Iran strategy. All right, <clears throat> so modernization. So the old missionary networks, you know, missionaries were operating in Iran since the 1830s, uh, and the World War II era advisory teams marked the first real American efforts to use training and education to, to gain influence in Iran or, or, or transform the country in some way. Uh, but Cold War era developments really marked something fundamentally different. Youth, right, youth. It was an important battleground in the Cold War. George Kennan and Frank Roberts are writing about it in their telegrams. And the documents that I consulted indicate that this was true across the board, whether in U.S. government agencies uh, or in NGOs. Around 1950, so, you know, we're a couple years uh, removed from the end of the Second World War, the U.S. government begins to devote considerable resources to educational initiatives in Iran. Uh, military defense assistance programs, Point Four, Fulbright are all coming into kind of creation around 1950. What I found was that beginning in the Truman-Eisenhower period, and continuing really through the 1970s, the U.S. and Iranian governments worked with their non-governmental partners to build educational ties of three types. Uh, so one would be in the military, which is what I have depicted up here. Uh, one would be in the area of technical assistance, broadly defined, uh, and the other would be cultural exchange. So I'll talk about these three uh, areas. Um, with regard to the military, this is the first target area. Uh, the military missions of the wartime years become permanent in 1947 with the creation of the U.S. military mission to the Iranian army, or ARMISH, you'll see. Um, this mission professionalized Iran's military administration and it trained, trained the ranks in how to use the U.S.-made equipment that arrived in greater quantities uh, after the 1953 coup. You constantly have this tension. How is there going to be enough trained people in the Iranian armed services to handle all of the weapons that the U.S. is going to provide the country. By the 1970s, it becomes utterly impossible. Um, but it's an issue that people are aware of very, uh, very early on. Um, while these initiatives really originate in the Truman years, you know, 1950-ish, they expanded during Eisenhower's presidency. By 1956, the largest U.S. military aid mission was in Tehran and the Iranian army, various police forces, and eventually SAVAK, the, the Shah's security service established in the late 50s with U.S. support, received some form of in and out of country U.S. training. Right, this could be anything from a few months overseas to, uh, in some cases, uh, maybe even a year with regard to some of the early military uh, trainees. The focus on military manpower remained a constant throughout the Shah's rule, and by the 1970s, some American schools, such as Norwich University in Vermont, I, I, I give a few case studies in the book, uh, were reserving about 10% of their seats for members of the Imperial Iranian Navy. Right, so the Shah decides he's going to triple the size of his navy. Uh, 
uh, overnight in the early 70s as the kind of oil boom is happening and, and Iran doesn't have the facilities to train uh, those folks for the Navy. So where do they go? The Citadel and Virginia Military Institute and, and Norwich and, and schools like this, many of them entering NROTC programs. Um, so the military is the first group. The second kind of focus group, target area for U.S. governmental and non-governmental assistant programs uh, is in this area of technical assistance, broadly defined. So usually when we think of technical assistance, we think of maybe uh, eradicating malaria or you know, building sewer lines or helping uh, Iran raise a better stock of chickens, right? these types of point four uh, initiatives. Um, in October 1950, the first point four agreement of the era is inked between the United States and Iran, and, and you have these types of initiatives being promoted. Uh, but arguably even more important uh, was in this area of public administration, which in the 50s was considered part of technical assistance, right? Aid organizations would have considered this part of technical assistance during the 1950s. Um, here we see that the work of universities and NGOs would be very important. So the University of Southern California uh, would get an aid contract to establish an institute of public administration in Tehran and train its staff. Other schools would get contracts, BYU, the Utah schools, there's a book coming out about that. And, um, and then by the 1970s, there's a real proliferation of contracts between American universities and various Iranian government ministries and uh, Iranian uh, universities. Uh, other non-governmental entities, Ford Foundation gets involved in Iran. The Ford Foundation in the late 50s issues a grant to Iran's economic planning organization uh, to recruit U.S. trained economists and send a team from Harvard to kind of help Khodadad Farman Farmian and others like him master the arc of the plan, right? So these types of technical assistance programs are, are coming into being in the late 1950s. By the time we get to the 1960s, and this is an argument I make in the book probably better than I will in the talk, that this is really the human foundation for what will become the white revolution, right? So in the 60s, the Shah begins to call his modernization program a white revolution. After 1963, by the 1970s, he's speaking of something even bigger, the, the great civilization. And without these individuals in the government, right, you don't have kind of the ability to administer these types of modernization. Uh, these types of modernization programs. Really, by the time we get into the 60s and 70s, the Shah's White Revolution and then later the Great Civilization is being mediated and administered by uh, a cohort of Western-trained officials. Uh, so my evidence confirms what another scholar has written about the Shah's government in the 1970s, and I quote him here, this was not just any technocracy, it was clearly an American-style program. Also in the 1970s, technical assistance, or really what by the 1970s is taking on kind of what we might really call technological transfer is occurring on an even larger scale. So unlike the 50s, when you have aid dollars or philanthropic funds supporting Iran's development efforts, now oil-rich Iran is paying for cash for services, right? The most important one, and the one that I look at in, in, in the book, is a $20 million contract uh, that Iran signed with MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to train a few dozen nuclear scientists. Um, so here we see that the most important U.S. contribution to what one scholar has termed the nuclearization of Iran is really in the training of its scientists. The third and the final, uh, and here you see this is a, an image and a headline from uh, an, an English language international publication by the Iranian government 
from the 70s, and you can see this emphasis on kind of progress, kind of uh, change and accelerated progress through the careful administration of the government by um, you know, primarily U.S. and West European trained um, officials. So the third target group or target area is in cultural exchange. So not military training, not public administration. Those are the two areas that social scientists in the 60s called uh, Leonard Binder, I'm thinking of here, the machinery of rationalization, right? And when you're thinking about how a country would be modernized, again, within the context of the Cold War, this is how people talk. Uh, cultural exchange is, is different from those, um, from those two uh, initiatives. This could happen through, right, kind of the cultural exchange could happen from individuals deciding to kind of pick up and go study in a country. So students who are unfunded by government or non-governmental programs, whose, whose uh, perhaps families just want them to have a, a better um, education. Uh, this could occur through the work of other NGOs like the American Friends of the Middle East. So this image uh, is of the Iranian Student Association which was established by the American Friends of the Middle East in 1953, a few weeks after the coup. Uh, and this is the group that will become the primary organization for anti-Shah organizing once they break with their patrons and the American Friends of the Middle East and the Iranian government in 1960. They elect uh, oppositionist members to their secretariat and this becomes the group, uh, which is kind of another twist in, in kind of the way that the United States waged its, uh, its, its cultural Cold War. But, but American Friends of the Middle East remain relevant through the entirety of the Shah's uh, reign, despite the fact that by the late 60s, we learned that they were a CIA front organization. Their services remained in high demand throughout the, the next decade. Fulbright program, the larger bundle of exchanges that are part of the State Department's International Educational Exchange Program. All of those programs you can learn about in the documents of the Bureau in Educational and Cultural Affairs that you, uh, are unfortunately farther removed from Washington, and we have to get them down at the university Arkansas. By the 1970s, policymakers and educationalists realize uh, kind of what has been created through these decades of exchanges. So we have uh, American officials uh, commenting in the 70s, and I quote here, on the extensive educational exchanges directed by the public and private sectors that have built a base of understanding and created a wide range of relationships that united important segments of the societies of the two countries. So people are very aware of uh, kind of the impact, the cumulative impact of all of this by the time we get to the 1970s. But it's an unfortunate circumstance of history that the explosion of travel between the two countries coincided with the Shah's most repressive years. Thus, while the number of organizations dedicated to strengthening educational ties between the United States and Iran proliferated throughout the decades, the contradictions between encouraging student migration and supporting the Shah as an agent of modernization and anti-communism remain unresolved. And it's for this reason, it's for this reason that the circuits of migration that connected the United States and Iran produced as many revolutionaries as technocrats. In the 60s and 70s, Iranian students overseas became very vocal critics of the Shah's government. As I mentioned before, most of the Shah's young critics would have been members in the United States of the Iranian Student Association, and they established relationships with critical Americans, and they collectively contest the U.S.-backed development effort in Iran. What I argue is that the Iranian students are at the center of this movement and that this rights discourse that emerges evolves also in three phases. So the first phase comes in the early 1960s. Uh, it was then that the Iranian Student Association adopts an oppositionist stance 
It was then that members of the Iranian Student Association, including relatives of Hossein Fatemi, uh, who was uh, Mossadegh's uh, cabinet-level official who was executed after the coup, uh, including members such as Sadek Gobsadeh, who had become head of the national radio and television station in Iran after the revolution and then foreign minister during the hostage crisis. These are the types of figures who are part of the Iranian Student Association in the early 60s. Uh, Fatemi at the New School in New York, Gobsadeh at Georgetown. You can go to the Georgetown newspapers and see very interesting pictures of the young Sadek Gobsadeh uh, from the early 1960s. This group, uh, they're reaching out to government officials during the early 1960s. Um, they established contacts with Attorney General Robert Kennedy, uh, with Supreme Court Justice William Douglas, who was very much an Iran watcher at the time. This group argued that Iranians should be able to enjoy constitutional protections and they should also have the right of free expression. This is a sensitive subject in the early 1960s. At the time, parliamentary governance was suspended. It was suspended between May 61 and September 63, pretty much the entirety of the Kennedy period. The Shah was at the same time in a political struggle at home, and the administration back in Washington then, Kennedy was considering whether or at least how much it should pressure the Shah to reform. This is a big debate in the literature. Was there a genuine push? Um, if there was a push, why was there a push? And it, if it ended, it clearly ended. Why did it end and when it, and why did it end when it did? Right? So I make an argument in a book, in the book that speaks to all of those historiographic conversations we could certainly, uh, we could certainly talk more about. This, what I'm ultimately describing is a transnational lobby group consisting of Iranian students uh, and kind of American officials on the, some at the center of the administration, some more on the periphery. Uh, of the administration, but that this group loses the argument, kind of they have the ear of the administration and really until the Shah launches the White Revolution in early 1963, right? So kind of once you have, uh, there's a great quote by a historian uh, of US-Iran relations that says, by 63, the White Revolution had co-opted the new frontier. And, and that really seems to be uh, the case, certainly by 1963, if not a little bit earlier in late 1962. Another thing we have to remember about this whole period, so here, I guess I would just point out, there's picture, you know, William Douglas and Mohammed Mossadegh, when Mossadegh came to the United States in the early 50s. Uh, this is, by all accounts, probably Gobsadeh or somebody in Gobsadeh's group being dragged out of the uh, Iranian embassy in Washington. Here we have a sit-in. Uh, the students of the early 60s like to talk of the American tradition of the sit-in, and they'll go sit-in in the consular offices in New York or the embassy in Washington. You can see the signs here. You have protests in Southern California, election now, Shah violates constitution. Here you have open Iran's parliament, critiques of the land reform initiative. You can see the issues that are important in the early 60s. Um, but by the time we get into the mid 60s, this type of argument doesn't have too many folks who are receptive to it. Right? Um, whoops, sorry. Uh, we have to remember that by the mid-1960s, the Shah is considered a modernizing monarch, right? This is a phrase that Samuel Huntington and other political scientists are using uh, in, uh, in, in the mid-1960s. When the United Nations in 1968 chooses a site to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, they go to Tehran and they meet in the Majlis building, right? So this is kind of the... Uh, kind of the nature of the era. Of course, 1968, as students are kind of you know, setting up the barricades in Paris and are kind of you know, occupying uh, presidential buildings at Columbia, uh, we have the Shah hosting uh, dignitaries from around the world to talk about human rights in Tehran. 
So in this environment, then, there is a kind of new approach that would have to be adopted. Once we get into the mid-1960s, Iranian students of the United States are looking for other allies, people who aren't really kind of affiliated with um, the government per se, at least during this period. So the National Student Association, early on of the 1960s, this SDS, Students for Democratic Society, the Iranian Student Association is reaching out to these organizations. And the students of the 1960s, the students internationalists of the 1960s produce what I argue is the second rights-based critique of the Pahlavi state. And they claim that, you know, yes, the Shah should respect Iran's constitution. They should recognize, the Shah should recognize the right to free expression and things like this. Uh, but also what the students argue by the later 60s is that Iran was one of many undemocratic states, unjustly considered part of the so-called free world. So this move, right, from a state-centered constitutionalist critique to a broader understanding of authoritarianism during the 1960s sets the stage, contributes to what scholars have since termed the human rights revolution of the 1970s. And it's that human rights argument that becomes the third and most powerful rights-based critique of the Pahlavi state that grows out of the educational connection between the two countries. So by the time we get to the 1960s, 70s, sorry, so here's some images, I guess, student publications. So you would find images like this on the right. Um, and actually next to this one, there's kind of language kind of taking on the Kennedy language. And, a torch has been passed to a new generation of, of Iranians born and bred of the hardships of post-war years, all this kind of thing, and they're kind of taking the Kennedy language and making it uniquely Iranian. Uh, by the late 60s, you'll see uh, kind of as a, an attempt to reach out to Americans as you have you know, crackdowns of various sorts in Iran. Publications will be printed, and you can see this one, Iran's Kent State and Baton Rouge, right? So uh, coming out of, uh, you know, that spring of 1970 in, in Kent State that you could kind of make a connection with young Americans by saying, hey, the you know, four dead in Ohio, this is happening in Tehran in some way too, and, and maybe this is something we should talk about in this international space. By the time we get to the 70s, we get to something even more comprehensive, right? Kind of this idea of universalist human rights uh, that really focuses on human suffering. Now, there are all kinds of other ideas that are being talked about within the framework of human rights in the 1970s. Uh, 70s, but you can see how the, the, the publications attempt to reach an English, uh, through the English language, attempt to reach that American audience, right? So this one on the left is from 1965. You see the, the mutilated body on the back. Um, you, know, you might think of something that would happen to a fugitive slave, right? You know, if you see this image of an American in the early 1960s. Their fight for freedom and justice is your fight, underlined at the very bottom. You see these types of pamphlets in William Douglas's papers and uh, actually, some of these show up in a lot of the different collections. This one comes from the 1970s. It's from the Iranian student publication Resistance, I believe. And you can see, again, the body, right, kind of a universal, um, uh, <coughs> kind of a universal trope for suffering, kind of the mutilated body. You see the cuff on the sleeve there that says Savak, uh, pulling the hair of, of the individual, the political prisoner who was chained to the chair. You wouldn't see images like that to the extent that you see them in the late 70s, 15 years earlier. Because this rights discourse evolves through these three stages that uh, I've outlined. By the mid-70s, members of Congress are interested in human rights in Iran, right? Uh, Amnesty International is organizing to try to generate interest in human rights uh, in Iran. Other types of so there are American groups that are beginning to be founded in the 70s, devoted specifically to human rights uh, in Iran. You have 
people like Kate Millett and the Committee for Artistic and Intellectual Freedom in Iran, so feminists, and all kinds of activists in the 70s who see Iran through their own lens. They might not know that much about Iran, but they're kind of seeing what they might want to see uh, in the country. Meanwhile, whether you're in Amnesty International or if you're in Congress or uh, if you're an activist in the 70s, you would potentially see Iranian students, right, as the numbers grow from 12 to 15,000, upward to 50,000 in the 70s, holding protest vigils, staging hunger strikes, confronting Iranian leaders when they travel uh, to the states, petitioning officials, right? Uh, all of this would have been happening uh, during the decade. <clears throat> All of this has the cumulative effect of really undermining the idea that the Shah is some kind of modernizing monarch. Uh, and the Shah is on the defensive by the time we get to the late 1970s. And I don't, you know, I argue that this wouldn't have happened without this kind of flow of people between Iran and the rest of the world uh, because you couldn't have these conversations um, in Iran in the same way. And officials are recognizing this, right? So Cyrus Vance, Jimmy Carter's Secretary of State, he sounds a warning to the president shortly after uh, Carter comes into office. And Vance says this, the national consensus which has supported previous administrations in dealing with Iran has been seriously eroded by the widely held perceptions of the Shah as arrogant, imperial, and insensitive to the personal freedom of his subjects. We can no longer behave the same way. The public perception of Iran is different than it was years ago. British diplomats see the same thing, and they're actually ascribing a cause to the shift, right? Uh, so according to British diplomats, and, I, and again I quote, the Iranian government made it a priority to recover the initiative from groups abroad, critical of the regime, mainly Amnesty International and the Confederation of Iranian Students. Right, so their newspapers are saying similar things, kind of spearheading the attacks on uh, human rights or, com uh, or the students. So I'll conclude, just a few brief remarks on, you know, why does all this matter for the Iranian Revolution of 1979? So the revolution that ends the Pahlavi dynasty and with it the monarchical tradition in Iran was a world historic event, we know this. It has become customary in the United States to explain the revolution as a visceral reaction from so-called traditional elements of society to Iran's rapid pace of development under the Shah. Uh, one top diplomat from the 1970s expressed this line of reasoning in his memoirs when he wrote that, and I quote, the revolutionary sentiment came not from those who wanted greater political participation in government, but from traditional quarters who were being forced to yield to the thrust of modernism. A generation of historians have made similar arguments, right, contending that 1979 saw Iran replace the turban for the crown or move from autocracy to religious rule. There is truth to these claims, especially when considering the cultural, so-called cultural revolution of the 1980s. But I would argue that such interpretations obscure more than they reveal about the diverse transnational movement that mobilized against the Shah for two to three decades, and then in 1978, early 1979, forced him off the throne. Those other interpretations also fail to account for the fact that the most important officials who staffed the provisional government after the Shah's departure were products of these very educational networks that connected Iran and the United States, and many of them would have been veterans of the anti-Shah movement overseas, so the folks who staff uh, Mehdi Bazargan's provisional government in 1979 consists, you know, at the highest levels, almost entirely of Western-educated officials, the U.S., but also Western Europe. So from this perspective then, the years 1978 and 1979 are more the product of the con contentious dialogue of civilizations that international education facilitated during the Shah's reign rather than evidence of a clash 
between the American and Iranian communities. In conclusion, and when considered amid the backdrop of a century and a half of sustained educational connections going back to the mid-19th century with the missionaries, the hyper-militarized uh, hyper relationship that began in the 1970s and carried over into the post-revolutionary years is really anomalous. Uh, the movement of people between Iran and the West for cultural and educational purposes has been the constant and an aspect that strategic planners and historians then and now must consider. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, let me uh, ask a couple of questions here. Uh, but first, I'm going to start with two factoids. And the first is that I saw the Shah in person twice. Once uh, at Harvard, I believe he was getting an honorary degree, and Why once in Tehran. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to uh, have actually seen the Shah. And the other was I was in the university when these protests were going on, so I know I didn't, not that I paid a lot of attention to it, but I do remember this as part of the backdrop of uh, student protests that there was with Iranians, which were quite vocal, and, you know, as, just as you say, I mean, we're, we're able to raise the visibility of this issue mm -hmm. uh, over the course of the 70s. Um, I want to start with a couple of questions in which I, you know, I talked, we had talked a little about you know, before we came out. And the first one is about uh, an analogy to China. That is that China has made the same deal, if you will, with its um, population. That is economic development in return for a curtailment of civil and political rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have also exported a huge number of students. Do you do you see you know any way that this might come back to you know have a, an effect on the Chinese the same way it had on the Shah, and if not, wh why not? Yeah. And That's I realize that China is not your area, so this yeah. is a little unfair, but yeah, no, it does fair. come to mind because you, in, um, you know there's been a lot of talk recently about the number of Chinese students, about the you know the rise of China, plus. Um, Chinese mechanisms to control of those students overseas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I think it relates most to the idea of what is the U.S. relationship with the state in question? Um, so should the United States promote international ties with China? It seems like a good idea. And, um, certainly a way to kind of continue that opening with the world that China has initiated in its late 70s and late 1980s, that the U.S. could potentially play a proactive role in that process. Whether or not people will go back and do the kinds of things that the Iranian students that I study do is, I guess, a, a different question entirely, and it would relate in some ways, and I don't know the China case well, but how are um, the folks that go abroad being absorbed back into society? Um, so are there enough stops? Right? So in Iran, you see issues where people will come back from overseas and maybe the jobs aren't there, or maybe the right kind of job isn't there. Right? Um, the political question is something different entirely. How, you know, what type of bargain do folks that work for the government, if they you know, uh, come back from overseas, how much do you sacrifice to kind of make a positive impact and perhaps bring some type of change to the fore from inside, right? That's uh, a question. 
But the, I think the big difference is that with Iran, and this is the big difference, I think. I would, maybe there are others, and I'd be curious to hear what others in the room think. Maybe folks who know more about the Chinese case particularly. But uh, with Iran, the U.S. was an ally, and the U.S. has tremendous influence in Iran, uh, especially when we go back into the period kind of Kennedy uh, and, and, and prior. So uh, the issue that comes up with Iran is that the United States, on the one hand, is supporting the Shah and kind of very aware that the Shah isn't really improving the situation in Iran. The arguments that things are getting better in the 70s, I don't think hold water. The Shah collapses the two-party system into a one-party state by the next torture is curtailed, but you know, kind of just the nature of kind of authoritarian governments doesn't really change until the liberalization measures of late 76 and 77. Um, so why would you support a government like that and then bring students to observe voting procedures in Washington? Like this is happening, you've seen the documents. Study the election, go learn about the Supreme Court from William Douglas, and then go home to your government. So. Uh, the difference is that the United States needed to do one of two things in the Iran case. They needed to kind of think more carefully about the nature of the cultural programming, right? Uh, which really by the 70s becomes just explosive. There's really not a lot of control over it. Um, or you kind of readjust the higher level strategy and really kind of compel the Shah to adopt the types of policies that would be attractive to, and not just to the dissidents, but to the great majority of folks who maybe just want to get it college degree overseas and, and, and return home. So one of those pieces needed to be altered in uh, the Iran case because of the nature of that leverage. Uh, in the case of China, it's different. You know, not an ally like the Shah's Iran, not an adversary like the Soviet Union, right? So it's kind of how do you strike that balance between the, the practice of American diplomacy? Uh, the dynamics would be different. Well, let me ask sort of again a follow-on which again we talked about a little beforehand and that is Saudi Arabia which has again made us you know, of course right across the Persian Gulf from Iran it's made again a similar uh, deal with its population development and a welfare state mm -hmm. in exchange for <coughs> civil and political rights have also sent a lot of students abroad mm -hmm. although their demises predicted annually, you know, the House of Saud is still there. Um, so again, the question is, and I realize again, you know, this is, Saudi Arabia is not your area, but, um, you know, why do you think that is? And beforehand, you were, at least I was speculating, is it because of religiosity and that the, the, the House of Saud has been very careful to at least publicly be very religiously observant? whereas the Shah went out of his way to be secular and to be non-observant. Up until the very end, the last couple of years, I think then he started to put on a show of, mm -hmm. of piety. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So, I mean, I was kind of talking about the material factors that you would need to address to absorb such a large kind of overseas population back home without having the problems that you see in the book. Um, and I think your question leads to another piece of kind of the way in which of the nation state are kind of marshaled by the government. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, the Saudis are probably better at that than the Shah was. The Shah, another thing that happened in the mid-1970s was kind of 
demonstrate how different it is to the example you gave. You can create a, a calendar, right, that isn't the Muslim calendar, but one that's based on you know, Cyrus the Great's reign forward. Right? So you wake up one year and all of a sudden it's a different year. Uh, and most accounts from the time, people didn't really understand why this was happening, right? There was a set of images that the Shah was marshaling from the pre-Islamic past and saw himself as a kind of modern-day Cyrus the Great and all this kind of thing. Uh, but it wasn't kind of the type of nationalist imagery that resonated with the most significant parts of the population. So perhaps, again, uh, not entirely sure, but with the Saudis, perhaps they're at least doing or attempting to do a better job with that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. An understanding of kind of the cultural discourse that, or the cultural parameters uh, that you operate within, whereas the Shah did not see those same parameters. He was extending them beyond what most of the population Okay, and, and I remember Persepolis because he had yeah. a, um, I've actually been there, but uh, but the Shah had some like big event at Persepolis to sort of mm -hmm. to show off again it was pre-Islamic mm -hmm. Persia. Yeah. Uh, and you can go to Persepolis today. They still have, yeah. So there's an event in October 1971 that to celebrate the 2,500 years of Persian monarchy going back to Cyrus. The dates you know, historians can probably think of dates, but all the dignitaries from around the world are invited, and there are, you know, there's a, you know, there's a parade of all the different Persian militaries from over the years, and uh, you had a tent city created, and the structures of those tents are still there. You can see the metal frames of the tents that the Shah built, and uh, it's kind of this, you know, <coughs> very grand event, and you can read about the, you know, the French restaurants that are catering and everything, all this in the newspaper accounts from the day. Uh, and yeah, so a lot of folks even go back to that event. People, some folks argue that that's really the event where there's a you know, the rupture between state and society that might not be able to kind of be recovered. Uh, other dates, you know, folks all point to different dates, but 71 is a date that is, is really emphasized. That would be a difference, I would Saudi Arabia. Okay. And, I'm, and I'm embarrassed to say that when I visited Persepolis, the tents were still there. They were still there. Okay. <laughs> they, they were new enough. Uh, uh, let me ask one last question and then we'll, we'll open it up. But the, the last question is why, why did this not, what raised this rights discourse that you talk about? And you, you make a, you know, a very strong argument about how this built particularly you know, in the 60s as they move, moved away from the constitutionalist uh, perspective to a rights dialogue that builds in the 70s as part of the global rights discussion. Why did that disappear so quickly then after the revolution? You have this interim government for about a year where maybe some of the people roll over and then it's sort of gone as if all of these whatever, hundreds of thousands of people who were educated overseas, I mean, that, that whole consciousness is submerged in, in a, an Islamic, um, mm -hmm. you know, wave. Yeah, where did it go? Um, I guess there would be multiple ways of answering that question. Uh, I, I'll maybe focus on two. Um, <coughs> and, and this is, I think, subject and thinking about future scholarship, kind of this question is really the one I think, or I, if I was to bet who would see in the next 
couple of years, a lot of work on this question of the revolution and the global context of the 70s, human rights, how does it matter, what types of rights are being emphasized. Um, so, you know, there is a group uh, in summer 79, um, Bazargan's group, people affiliated with the liberation movement of Iran, uh, and they're advocating for a particular type of constitutional revision. So the Iranian constitution is going to be revised in 1979, and uh, eventually it's going to include Khomeini's idea of the mandate of the jurist, right, the idea that the supreme Shia leader will be the guardian of the state until the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, returns, right, that idea. Uh, not all Shias would believe that. We see a rift within Islam and Iraq and how many in Iran today over that issue. And in Iran, there are debates about kind of what should this new constitution look like? What would an Islamic Republic really look like in practice? And there are folks who are opposed to the idea of the supreme leader, the mandate of the jurist. Uh, they lose the argument, right? They really lose the argument over the course of the summer of 79 and even some scholarship on the hostage crisis. Uh, people will say, well, the real reason that supporters ultimately went to the hostage crisis is because it generated support for Khomeini's version of the Constitution in the lead up to the constitutional referendum that fall. Uh, so there are people who, who want to kind of see rights uh, be part of the new state, um, but they're not the majority when we get into that period. Um, after the hostage crisis, many of these folks re resign. Um, um, people like Gokhzadeh, his fate is even worse. He's executed in 1950. Right? So, uh, as in any revolution, there are going to be different factions, and not all factions win out in those revolutions, and that oftentimes can result in tremendous bloodshed. Right? And we see that in centuries of the Mughal attacks in 1783. Um, so it's not gone, I guess, entirely, but it gets buried, and it's not the really the majority opinion. Certainly not the one that um, the other kind of point, and this is something that I'm just really now beginning to think about, right? what happens to the human rights conversation on Iran when we move into the 80s? Right? So in the 70s, I mentioned Kate Millett, who are members of the Black Congressional Caucus, or you know, kind of folks from the political left, whether it's kind of Cold War liberalism or way farther to the left. Um, in the 1980s, you're going to have kind of a different coalition emerge. You should talk about human rights in Iran, too, but the nature of that conversation is going to be different. Now it's an adversarial state as opposed to an allied state, and uh, Americans are thinking about human rights in the Islamic Republic different than they're thinking about uh, human rights in uh, purely Iran. Uh, so even internationally, of course, we know today, I mean, any human rights in Iran, you can have a lot of conversations about human rights in Iran today. So the conversation hasn't went away, it's, it's just shifted. And that this rights talk of the 60s and 70s is right, unique, a unique historical product that, that came out of that time. Uh, and when we get into the 80s and 90s and forward, it's going to look a little bit uh, different. Uh, so I guess that's the way I would ask, answer that question, that uh, it doesn't go away, but kind of the proponents of some type of broader umbrella of rights they lose out on the revolution. Khomeini will be talking about rights, but not the kind of rights we were talking about. He, you know, uh, 
freedom of exploitation, anti-imperialism, you know, kind of the uh, reaching out to maybe the poor residents of South Tehran with a more populist message couched in Quranic terms. And um, so it's going to evolve and it's going to kind of, there's going to be a different exercise when we get into the 1980s. But that's a great question. <coughs> great. Well, with that, I think we can open it up to uh, questions. Uh, we have microphones, so if someone has a, a question, we have a lady right in the back there. First, have to get her hand up. I kind of see it as, I mean, it was a way to kind of divide and conquer. You said our CIA was heavily involved in Iran throughout the decades. And um, how much more money could our military-industrial complex make from doing, uh, you know, we used Iran's oil, but we were starting to become, could, could speak up a by little the 70s, we were starting to become a little bit more concerned about the environment. And, uh, of course, we were heavily uh, purchasing oil also from Saudi Arabia, but as long as we can maintain them as adversaries and uh, as an Islamic Republic, um, they became more adversarial towards Saudi Arabia, is that true? And of course, who needs to buy our military weaponry? Who invests in our military uh, complex is Saudi Arabia. So I think it was something that was also, they probably saw the writing on the wall that we weren't gonna be spending as much money fighting the Soviets because there's the Tante under Carter and things, the winds were changing with the Soviet empire and um, who is our next gonna be bogeyman is, is uh, the Muslim people, uh, uh, Islamic Republic, um, peoples who could uh, be forever fueling um, our military budgets. So could you elaborate on that please? Thank you. <laughs> transformation of Iran from an ally to an adversary is kind of the nature of the question and, and why that happens. And um, Well, I guess what I would argue is that you know, there are very real reasons why Iran and the United States get into confrontations after the revolution. Republic is not interested in the United States having the presence in the country that it had in the 60s and the 70s, and it's certainly not interested in uh, kind of a military presence in the region or um, supporting fundamentally different people. So there, I mean, there are uh, there you know, there there are reasons why it's difficult for the United States and Iran to get get along today. Uh, but this idea of perception and how Iran may be portrayed in a way that perhaps makes it difficult for kind of meaningful rapprochement to happen, I think is an important one. Um, and there are all kinds of different, so there's work on this. Uh, and there are some reasons why it happens. You know, so how do Americans remember the hostage crisis? Right? Um, the image that so many folks have of Iran of a blindfolded hostage and you know, uh, nightline 444 days and um, you know there's certainly things that happened in the 80s with additional hostage kind of hostages getting taken throughout the region or the Iran-Iraq war or, or Iran-Contra or uh, whatever it may be um, so there are kind of 
I guess what you would, I guess kind of what I'm, you know, there are reasons, perceptual reasons, why it's difficult for the United States to kind of get beyond Iran as an adversary today. Uh, Doug Little wrote a book called Us Versus Them, and he talks about the move from the red threat to the green threat after the Cold War, which sounds like kind of what you know, you're saying. Um, so there are reasons that relate to perception, I think, that accounts for that. Um, and then there would be kind of real geopolitical reasons why it's difficult for the governments to get together in kind of the same room and work out kind of their issues over the longer term. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I guess as we move forward and we get those documents that are coming out from the 80s and beyond to think about kind of the geostrategic reasons for an adversarial relationship between the U.S. and Iran, and then the areas where perhaps it's about perception and not about a real conflict uh, of interest, right? And just to kind of tease out the difference between those two strands. Um, I don't know if that answers your question directly, but. Um. <clears throat> okay, yeah, here in front. In the uh, 53 picture in Denver of the Iranian Student Association, I think I counted five or six women. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could briefly trace the role of our Iranian women in the, this process. Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right, I've done the same thing, really close look at this image and who are the folks in that room. And uh, <clears throat> so, women are not well represented in the Iranian student diaspora prior to the 70s. Uh, the numbers that I use in the book, I think, come from a UNESCO study from the late 60s, and it's, I don't remember the exact number, but it might be single digits, percentage-wise. Uh, it might be like 10%, it's a small number in the late 60s. That same study, it's probably in, a, in a, well, an explanatory footnote somewhere, but it, I go through and talk about the subjects being studied then too, and they were predominantly science engineering type subjects um, during that time period as well. Things do begin to change in the 1970s, uh, and we do have a lot of interesting memoir literature written by you know, a book called Persian Girls about a woman who studied abroad in the 60s and 70s, and. Uh, Satare Farman Farmayan's Daughter of Persia talks about this. So we have some interesting kind of accounts of kind of the experiences that Iranian women had while studying overseas, um, but in the minority. Uh, things do begin to change in the 70s. A couple things change in the 70s. So the Shah, after the oil windfall, makes higher education free, uh, and he invests a lot of money in overseas study. So. If you're the best student in your academic department, you get to go abroad for a grad degree. If you're overseas for two years and you have a, like a 3.0 average and you're studying development-related subject, you pay for the rest of your college. Right? All kinds of incentives. Um, while wealth is not in any way evenly distributed, in 1970s Iran, Nikki Keddy writes of the two cultures that kind of emerge between kind of the wealthy North Tehran and then and the South Tehran and what those two communities represent. Uh, there is more money and people are able to afford to send children overseas, more people who maybe are not in the upper classes, so there's a, uh, you get a, a shift in class dynamics when we get into the 70s. Uh, you get a greater representation of, you know, kind of uh, women to some extent in the 70s, and people studying such a different range of subjects by the time we get to that, that period. Um, 
So not well represented in the leadership of the student movement either. And, and there is, I'm forgetting the name of the article, but there is an article out there on gender dynamics and student movement. So I guess just to sum up, kind of in the, through the 60s, women would be a minority in the student community abroad. But as we move into the 70s, and that community is diversifying in a lot of different ways, uh, women become more represented uh, and really great accounts to speak at least of some of the women's experiences who, who came overseas during that period. Thank you. And, yeah. and you might also note that, to be fair, the Shah, I mean, the flip side of his secularism was, uh, I think, a more open attitude towards women that you don't see in much of the rest of the Islamic world, Saudi Arabia. Well, that's, and that's an interesting, really, that's, that's really important, right? So the, um, in the UN images, you would have seen the Shah's sister as, uh, you know, who represented the Shah in international organizations. She was a, a face of women's rights and humans ri human rights in the UN, um, Ashraf Pahlavi. Um, female cabinet ministers, right, by the time we get into the 70s. Uh, you know, so there are strides being made. Now, the flip side of that then is that, like, now um, that hasn't changed, but it's the dynamics have changed, right? So in education, so you have the mandatory veiling and all of the things on the surface that really have changed Iran. Um, but, you know, 60% of the college population are women. You wouldn't have that type of kind of representation in kind of universities back then. And, you know, there have been studies on healthcare and things like this that, uh, so kind of the optics of the Shah's government was very much, we are a government that is inclusive uh, of women and very different from the rest of the region. That's part of the modernizing monarch trope. Uh, and, you know, the Islamic Republic doesn't have the same record, uh, but there hasn't been a total pause and kind of the question of, of women's rights. So that's, uh, and that would be kind of another kind of field to really kind of get into. And the Iranian scholars are, of course, studying kind of the internal dynamics of that. But when we get into Iran and the world, uh, kind of how do the gender dynamics of that question change after the revolution would be another you know, kind of really rich topic to, to study historically. So that, that's a second follow-on <laughs> right. book topic that we've come up with that's today. That's right. <laughs> Okay, uh, over here. Oh, I mean, the, the gentleman in the back, he's been waiting patiently. Hi, my name is Bill Cruzy. I, I have an anecdote about Iran <coughs> and a comment about China. Uh, I was a student at Georgetown in the 60s. Hmm. I knew that fellow, is it Gokhsadeh? Yeah. I wasn't close friends, but <coughs> we talked occasionally. And the last time I spoke with him, he was telling me how he was desperately trying to get his visa uh, renewed because of the Savak was going to get him. Uh, the next time I saw him was on television when he was the uh, foreign minister. Mm -hmm. And then I read that he's executed. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, I met a, an Iranian emigre who told me the reason he was executed was Gobzada and a group were, were plotting a coup against the Muslims. That's and the charge. Yeah. They lost. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> regarding China, uh, we see now in the papers how China is getting more author authoritarian. And I think the Iran, Iran experience is a good reason. Um, just for an example, I, I have uh, uh, two nephews who are from, uh, came to the U.S. and got educated, and they've done very well. And they go back and forth, and they give money to their parents. So that there's a, they know American ideas are getting in there. 
And last year I had a, a comment with a, a young woman who was a, a graduate of a Chinese university who was working here and we were talking about politics. And it got to the point where I said, now in China, do you read about President Xi getting criticized the way President Trump is being criticized? And she had no answer, but she's still here and she's gonna be thinking about that. Hmm. So that's why I think China is reacting to this potential problem. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the comment on China is very interesting. I would just comment very quickly on the first piece. Uh, the, the visa issue, kind of the ability of students to travel was one of the main issues in the early 60s that got the students so much attention. And if you see the sit-in sit image that I used to have up there, there was a, one of the signs said, hands off our passports or something like that, right? So, um, so this was a major issue. So Gopsai Day actually, a after Robert, sorry, after John F. Kennedy is assassinated, this would have been about a month after the assassination, uh, the two leading student oppositionists are called into the Justice Department's office and they're given a warning, pretty much be quiet or leave, more or less is what they're told. And this had been an ongoing dispute between the State Department and Robert Kennedy's Justice Department throughout the Kennedy period. This is part of the larger dynamic of the early 60s, how this question really creates a rift in the, within the U.S. government because the, the, you know, Robert Kennedy sees things differently than Rusk's uh, State Department. Um, and it's really this issue of, you know, kind of what rights do students have in this country uh, and how heavy-handedly could their government respond to what the students are doing overseas that gets the Iranian Student Association so much publicity in the early 60s. This is really the issue that's getting uh, a lot of the American students and certainly someone like Robert Kennedy's attention, right? Uh, so something seemingly little, maybe, right, this idea of, uh, becomes a major issue. Uh, and then, so Gopsade leaves uh, very shortly. He ends up in the 70s. He's in Paris for most of the time, and he's kind of around um, traveling on different types of paperwork during this period. Uh, the other individual in question, actually, after Robert Kennedy then leaves the Justice Department in late 64, then his paperwork is not renewed. So you see how the Robert Kennedy piece, once he's gone, uh, there really is kind of this this is what the Iranian government wants, this is our ally, no reason to irritate him, right? Uh, then there's an appeals process and that student eventually stays and ends up teaching economics in a, in a, uh, in a college in the United States. Uh, so, and throughout the book you'll see instances like this where an event like that, in the early 70s there's a, a representative's, um, you know, somebody from Northern California uh, is arrested in Iran, a woman. Uh, and her representative in Congress gets interested and starts to inquire about an American political prisoner in Iran to the State Department. Or in the early 60s with the, the issue of travel paperwork. Um, that often then leads us into a much broader conversation about human rights. So you'll have these little sparks that then take on a life of their own. Um, so it's really interesting that he's, you remember that, and he's, he's talking about that very issue because it was probably the most important issue to him in addition to the Shah's government in the early 60s. Yeah. Uh, question over there? Um. Uh, why did you name the book Losing Hearts and Minds? I like questions like that because it was so direct. Yeah, that's a good question. I thought about this. So there have been at times a question mark to this title. 
there isn't one for this book, question mark. Um, and I've thought about this. Um, so there's an argument that one could make, and I move in this direction in the epilogue, right, that maybe, first of all, I say that you know, when it comes to international education, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not about winning or losing hearts and minds, that there are so many other variables that are so much more important when we're thinking about international study and travel. But if we take the programs on the terms that were set by the historical actors at the time, right, uh, that international education will be a way to establish a cultural foundation for the U.S.-Iran alliance, then it clearly fails. Um, now, if we move past the revolution and we start thinking about, for instance, uh, the 10,000 Iranian students in the U.S. today, uh, or the continued appeal of an American education, not just in Iran, but in different, all around the world, uh, that maybe the kind of cultural appeal of just kind of that international experience means that those hearts and minds weren't lost over the long term. I also talk about the Rouhani administration now. Uh, the most American PhDs in the Rouhani cabinet in 2013 than any other kind of foreign cabinet, right? Um, Rouhani educated abroad, Zarif, foreign minister educated in the United States, and that kind of we see kind of the residual effect of the Cold War exchanges because while those individuals, you know, bureaucrats in the Islamic Republic worked their way up through the system, um, nonetheless kind of aware of how Iran is perceived in the world and kind of aware of how Americans are talking about Iran or other global issues because of time spent in the United States. Um, so I don't think it's a coincidence that you have an American educated Iranian foreign minister and a John Kerry when he was Secretary of State channeling kind of that anti-war sentiment into Foggy Bottom's most important files. I don't think that that's a coincidence. So the idea of having mutual reinforcing international experiences as the way toward some type of uh, improvement in the relationship, if we begin to look at those people and those types of questions, then we see that maybe losing hearts and minds, maybe that question mark would have been um, more appropriate. Nonetheless, uh, on those terms, especially when we see kind of the anti-Shah movement in the 70s and the way that the revolution played out, uh, I thought long and hard about this question and I felt like it was appropriate given the kind of expectations of the architects of those programs and the way that kind of the United States experience in Imperial Iran ended in 1979. But if we take a longer view, it could be a little different. <clears throat> question? Thanks. I was going to ask the same question just to follow up for a minute. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer, and we thought a lot, especially after 9-11, about alumni of American universities and what role they play. And maybe it's a post-Cold War thought, but I think expecting them to be pro-American or anti-American, pro their own government, anti their own government, was way too simplistic and there mm -hmm. are very few people who are going to fall into those kind of binary categories. Mm -hmm. But we did see them as bridge builders, as validators, interpreters, people who might understand motivations mm -hmm. and be able to explain them between the two societies. And I'm curious if you've done any follow-up of the tens of thousands who were in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s and where they ended up. And clearly some are stigmatized in, or, in or Iran where it might have been killed. But there's not only the foreign minister but the head of the nuclear program, 
who maybe because of the joint MIT affiliation negotiated with Secretary Moniz in great detail one of the huge triumphs of mm -hmm. sort of fact-based diplomacy of actually mm -hmm. using facts and figures to reach some kind of international agreement on the in the Iran nuclear deal and that it, that couldn't have happened if that if they hadn't had that same kind of intellectual framework maybe just yeah. be curious on your where we are today in terms of the lost hearts and minds. Yeah, no, that's a good question, and I, I should have mentioned that too. So the leaders of the diplomatic track are as I described, but the leaders of the technical track of the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action Negotiations. Uh, Ernest Moniz, a professor uh, from MIT back in the 70s, Ali Akbar Salehi, a uh, student at MIT from the 70s who then becomes foreign minister and head of Iran's Atomic Energy Organization. Now he's not part of the MIT contract, he's there as the dozens of other students are. Uh, arriving, and we have, you know, yeah, uh, not just kind of, I mean, we we have folks commenting on the significance of of that kind of again mutually shared experience. Um, you know, where do the students go? So I I do talk about folks returning during the revolutionary years. We have a lot of accounts. You know, a student in Southern California who doesn't enroll in classes in August '78 and decides to go home, right? Uh, and we have accounts also of kind of how there would be other students like that, um, you know, kind of people involved in anti-war movement, human rights, and then kind of getting off planes in Iran in, in early fall 1978. Um, I stay in that historical moment. Now, the question of what do folks, Iranians who would have been studying in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s, kind of what today, if they're you know, still around and um, you know what their views on the Islamic Republic are, what their views on the United States uh, might be, what their views on larger subjects such as war and peace might be. That's a fascinating question. I haven't done that. Um, it would be a good project, a good social science project, you know, to really kind of get the kind of the data to be able to discuss that question and how the last 40 years, right, as much time has passed between the revolution and today as the whole Shah's reign, right? So, um, you know, how have people's views changed with the opportunity to reflect over those decades? Um, it's a good question. I mean, there certainly, anecdotally, you'll talk to folks, and a lot of folks don't, um, you know, sometimes will look back with regret on this period, right? That maybe a lack of awareness as to what might happen or what exactly was being supported and things like that, would it have been better with the Shah? All those kinds of questions, th those come out in those conversations, but beyond just anecdotal evidence and conversations, uh, it, it would be interesting to see kind of what the long-term opinions are. All right, last question here, fellow in the pink shirt. Dr. Shannon, it's great to see you again. Um, so my question, throughout your research, did you find that Iranian students in the U.S. generally supported or opposed Mohammad Reza Shah's white revolution? Hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I, I, I talked in the presentation generally about modernization, right, uh, as it was understood at the time. Uh, the, the modernization program was the White Revolution as of 1963. Um, so um, it's, again, it's both, right? So the, the, the Shah's White Revolution, 
um, it's going to be administered by many of the kind of U.S. educated technocrats I talk about. There's a kind of a political uh, circle, the New Iran Party, uh, in the mid-1960s that consists primarily of kind of U.S. educated Iranians who are kind of interested in working for the government and that New Iran Party will be uh, you know, you go back in the literature of the time, this is how the Shah is going to institutionalize his modernization program through the new Iran party. And, and, and so that's an important piece. Um, yeah, uh, the U.S. Embassy, it's great to you know, you go through and read the kind of embassy files and you know, whenever an election comes around in Iran, a parliamentary election, they'll go out and talk to their friends and you kind of see what the technocrats are saying kind of every couple of years about this question about the nature of the white revolution. At the same time, the folks who I'm studying, especially the Iranian Student Association, they don't see merit in the white revolution. They think it's, um, again, there was a lot that was good about the white revolution. Women's suffrage in Iran part of the White Revolution, the literacy cores, uh, right? Um, all, you know, so many good, you know, eventually by 67, education becomes a part of the White Revolution. By the mid-70s, free education to Iran. So there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of the White Revolution. What the students are arguing is, uh, they're making a couple arguments. They say, abroad, folks didn't get to participate in the referendum, so a lot of students abroad are upset about how the White Revolution was rolled out. Uh, they see it as a kind of, the student organizations see it as a kind of talking point that detracts from the more serious political issues, right? Um, and that it's a way many of the students see as kind of putting the opposition on the defensive. So how do you oppose the white revolution without being branded as, you know, um, Right, so the way it's talked about at the time is that if you oppose the white revolution, you must either oppose it because you're against women's entrance into political life or you're not interested in kind of uh, the government breaking up some kind of religious land holdings uh, to do what they please with it, right? So the, the issues that the ulama were primarily concerned with, the issues they had with the white revolution, tended to, in kind of the Shah's language, become why anybody was opposed to the white revolution. So it gets really hard to oppose such a program. Uh, and in the mid-60s, there are direct references to the White Revolution. Um, but as we move into the later 60s, it becomes too narrow of an issue. Uh, and that's why the anti-authoritarian critique, or by the 70s, this question of universal human rights becomes more effective language. Uh, right? You can talk about a, someone being tortured and gain interest overseas it'll be more likely that you'll get interest over that subject than talking, I mean, to somebody about the nature of land reform in Iran, right? So they oppose it, but as we move through time, the language moves beyond just the white revolution, and we get into this area of human rights. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Well, please join me in thanking uh, Professor Shannon for joining us this afternoon.